It's 2023, and I'm not dead. Life is good. <laughs> just struggled through uh, another sinus infection. Jesus, Lord. It's, it's like I was just saying to Chris this week. It's like, what disease do I have this week? I'm actually doing all right. It's just been a pneumonia is a hard thing to get over, and I'm doing fine, actually. Fine. I've had a lovely Christmas. I hope you all did, too. I just sat around and smoked a certain amount of marijuana and watched a large amount of Netflix and streaming. I now feel much more familiar with every aspect of the Star Wars story than I ever did before. And it's not bad, actually. Andor is, was really interesting and fun. And Obi-Wan Kenobi is great, too. And little baby Yoga, Yoda, sorry, Yoga, little baby Yoda, Grugo, I think his name is Grogo, Grogo, Grugo, believably adorbs, totes adorbs. We're all down with Grugo. <laughs> In his wide eyes. And we have a, also a great lineup coming up. We have, among others, Glenn Lowry. We have Rod Dreher finally coming on for a big heart-to-heart, which should be more than a little interesting, I hope. And we have... And John Gray. And John Gray. I, why do I... Anyway, John Gray, the great British political philosopher, one of the most original minds in the West right now, I would say. And I'm incredibly psyched to have him. This week, however, we're bringing back one of our favorite early Dishcast guests, Nick Miroff, who's the supremely talented reporter at the Washington Post covering immigration and the Department of Homeland Security. And before that, he was a foreign correspondent based in Mexico City and Havana. Nick Welcome back. It's lovely to see you again. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be back with you, and your, your voice sounds pretty good. So yeah, that's, no, that's it's, it's, I'm doing great. I'm, do, I'm, I'm a little overly peppy and caffeine, especially for this particular topic. But let me ask you, let's start with, because we, are, we keep reading stories about another wave of immigration at the southern border. We don't really have much coming out of the Biden administration. They tend to be very quiet on this, as if they just hope it will go away. When, let me start with a pretty basic question. When Kamala Harris says the border is closed or the border is secure, what do we mean by that? What exactly do we mean? We have this debate. We have open borders. No, we don't. We, we have neither, right? We, we don't have open borders in the sense that people do have to register. They have to go through a border. There are immigration officials. There are cops. There are border patrol officials. At the same time, large numbers of people seem to be able to come into the country without actually being authorized yet to stay in the country. So how, if, we, if, 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 if zero is no boundaries to entrance and 100 is a totally secure East Germany, <laughs> East German Berlin Wall, where are we? That's a great question, Andrew. I would say we're probably at least more than 50% open. And I would say that just based on looking at, like, let's take the, the, the monthly numbers from U.S. Customs and Border Protection, right? This is the government's best count of how many people are coming in and being taken into custody. And they're really, they're, they're, we're, we're talking about two, two streams, two effective groups of people. One, are the, one is the group of people who are coming in and either giving themselves up, surrendering to authorities, to the U.S. Border Patrol in particular, in order to start some kind of asylum process, but in hopes of being able to stay. And then there's a second group of a subset of those who are people who are coming in and trying to evade capture and being captured, typically adults, adult men, who may be previous deportees, who may know that they wouldn't qualify for some kind of humanitarian refuge. And then, and then there are the quote-unquote gotaways, which is what C- how CBP refers to people who they know 
entered, but they were not able to to interdict. And we we have a better a better sense of how many of those people are out there because they show up on the video monitors, on the sensors, that type of thing. But given how overwhelmed the border patrol is, they also know that when they don't apprehend them. And so I would I would say for for the most part, like the you know if you want to come into the United States, if you reach the border, if you have if you pay the the right people, the coyotes, the the traffickers in Mexico, and you attempt that journey, I think your batting average, your 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 the chances that you will come into the United States and not be immediately deported are better than 50%. And we know that just because we can see how many people are being either deported or sent back to Mexico. And what are those numbers of people actually being deported? Like, is I, I've seen a number out there that says each year, roughly 2% of the entire illegal population is deported. Is that, have you heard a number like that? I, I think it's probably less than that at this point. And here's why. The, 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 who the government is, is, remember, a deportation is, a, is a, legal, a legal immigration process, right? That, and so when U.S. Customs, when U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, carries out an arrest and a deportation from the interior of the United States, that's usually somebody that has come to ICE through the criminal justice system. They've been arrested for, for something else. Maybe they have an outstanding deportation order from a court and the government is able to put them on a plane and take them back to their home country. That is a relatively small number of people. ICE just released its year-end numbers, and it was about, that was about 72,000 people last year. And we're talking about a, an, a, a population of, of over, you know, at least 11 million people living in this country without legal status. So again, when you actually just very coldly run the odds of getting into the United States and getting deported— the odds are extremely slim that that's going to happen unless you happen to get involved in some other kind of crime. But even then, we're talking about 72,000 people out of 11 million a year, something like that, which is obviously a a drop in the the ocean. Now, and the numbers, I should say, are even lower if this is, say, a family coming in, because what DHS you know statistics show is that the, the the great majority of the of the of the people who who arrived as part of a family group and certainly underage minors they're they're you know ninety percent of of that of that group is still here has not either left or or been been deported when looking at these low relatively low deportation numbers and they are much lower you know relative to historic averages we also have to factor in the title forty two policy that you've probably heard about right yes and that's the pandemic policy that was implemented in March 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, that lets the government, lets CBP, quickly turn somebody around, send them back to Mexico. And so there are certain groups, like particularly Mexican adults, Central American adults, those groups are subject to Title 42. And so the deportation numbers look lower because many of those people are being quickly turned back to Mexico. I see. In many cases, to try again. Right. Title 42 is a kind of a delay. It's a it's a it's a obstacle that people are confront, fail to overcome, then come back and try again and try again. Here's what fascinates me: is is that I mean, if you just look more generally, okay, okay, so you have a extremely good chance if you get into the bo- across the border, legal or illegal, of staying here indefinitely. So, so at, at some point, we have to ask ourselves: why have we built? this incentive system. Obviously, we, we kind of want, we do want immigration, but this is a kind of immigration policy that's set 
by the populations outside the United States just deciding or wanting to move to the United States as opposed to the United States deciding itself who it's going to let into the country and how, the, the, the way a normal country should operate. Let's go through the three categories. The first are those who apply for asylum. That's the vast majority, right? Is is a hefty majority. And asylum, as I understand it, let me, let me put this to you, is fleeing political or religious ideological persecution. That's that's how I've understood it. Cold War era in particular, right? These these new immigrants are coming, these migrants are coming not are coming from Mexico, which is not a totalitarian state. They're not being persecuted there. Although they, they do want to move on to the United States. On what grounds are they claiming asylum? And what does that word mean now in terms of immigration law? Well, this really cuts to the heart of the dysfunction in our immigration system and what's going on at the border, right? We're effectively using our asylum system as a labor importation system. Right. In the absence of some kind of agreement in Congress on you know ways to bring in labor, address the labor shortages that we have, to find the workers that, that companies need, we have people using the asylum system and a certain degree of, of government complicity in this process. And you're right. When, when, you, when you say, you know, what is asylum for? It's, it, it, you know, if you look at the Immigration and Nationality Act, asylum, you know, someone who comes into the country and sets foot on U.S. soil has the right, has the legal right to seek asylum in this country if they are found to be or if, and and are, they're, they're able to get a hearing from the government if they have a credible fear of being a victim of religious or political persecution or for their membership in a, in a particular social group, which is the one category that is a little squishier. But in general, yes, that is what this process is reserved for. Now, what's going on is that all, all of these people who are entering the country across the border, who are being taken into custody, they are stating effectively a, a fear of harm if returned to their home countries. And by doing that, they, they really slam the brakes on the detention and deportation process, right. particularly the deportation process. And so if that person is found, you know, and, and at, at this point with so many people coming in, the government doesn't even have the ability to screen their, those fear claims, right? They're just basically giving them a court date an appointment and, you know, to come to report to ICE or to, to show up in immigration court where a judge will then hear those claims and make like an initial determination. Now, when the, when the, when the Border Patrol gets so overwhelmed that they can't even process, they can't even complete that process, they are literally giving people a piece of paper saying, to basically asking them to self-report to ICE in the, their destination city in the United States. And so they've done this, you know, on a large scale over the past two years at moments when they just... They just Simply you know, because they... They just do not have the staffing to, 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 to process the number of people trying to do this. They don't have the staffing and they don't have the detention space. They don't have, you know, despite setting up these, these huge tents, you know, where they're, that are using like as overflow spaces, you know, which cost a fortune to operate. But you know, getting back to, to, you know, the beginning of your question, how many of these people apply for asylum? The actual percentage of, of people who complete the asylum process, who, who, who actually go through it, and, and comply with the first, you know, the whole process, that's actually quite low. And so this is really the, the, that kind of loophole, that, that, that gap in, in our enforcement system where by making a fear claim and, and getting into the court system, this incredibly backlogged system where there's more than 1.5 million pending asylum claims, once you get into that system, 
you're almost guaranteed to be able to remain in this country and work here for a certain number of years. And even if you are eventually ordered de deported, you're not a priority for enforcement, at least under the, the policies established by the Biden administration. And the chances of you, you know, being, you know, if you're, if you're working and you stay out of, you know, you run into the law or have any problems like that, the chances of being deported are quite low. And this is why, you know, when you, when you ask about the, the administration saying the border is closed, that's really, I, you know, I see that as just sort of a, a messaging campaign and an attempt and, you know, and a kind of signaling to, to, for the U.S. population. But that's not how migrants are, are making their, their decision to invest in migration, right? Because migration is an investment. It costs a lot of money to, 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 you know, to hire a smuggler, to, to pay the bribes that you need to get into the United States. So if you're making that investment, it's, a, you know, it's like a rational calculation. Is this a good time to go or not? And you're going to make that decision based upon what your friends and your family members probably in the United States are telling you, not what the, what the government is saying. Right. Tell me, this is a very simple layman's question, which some of our listeners may also have, which is, okay, they have to raise a certain amount of money to get the coyotes and the other paraphernalia to get them to the border and then over. Why don't they just buy a simple plane ticket and come as a tourist and never leave? That's, that's, so <laughs> why that? Why not that? Well, a lot of people do do that. Oh, obviously they do, but I'm just saying, I don't see why that isn't, it's a certainly more convenient than struggling across deserts. So why, why would these people be, would they be immediately suspected at immigration? Yeah, someone from Haiti or, or Central America or many countries in Latin, many countries around the world, you know, there are visa requirements. You can't get on a plane to the United States. It's just not, it's just not possible. And so while there is a, a significant number of people who arrive legally on a plane with a visa and then overstay that visa and remain in the country and eventually, and, and, you know, oftentimes adjust their status in order to be able to stay here and, and become permanent legal residents. There, for, for, for millions of other people who are either attempting this journey or considering this journey, that's simply not an option. They, they, they have to cross the border. And in many cases, they have to resort to this, you know, asylum, you know, theater, basically, that we have now. I'm trying to think at this moment of, of, of the obvious common sense solution of this. Let me suggest one that seems quite obvious to me, which is that you, you render the asylum loophole much tighter. You say it can only be direct political or religious persecution in the country where you are applying. If you haven't made it across the border, where you are right now, in other words, in Mexico. So anybody that made it in Mexico would not have an asylum case. Or you build a big bloody wall of some sort, or at least you beef up that security to a much greater degree. Um, and you then try and for fix the actual problem in Congress by funding properly the immigration court system, which is grotesquely, I'm almost absurdly underfinanced. It's like you're asking... It's, 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 it's simply impossible to believe the government is serious about immigration policy when its, its own policies are this completely lax and chaotic. They don't care, right? Isn't that, that's a kind of, is that an impression that you think people rightly or wrongly have? Like, what does Biden really think about this? 
I, well, there were a lot of lot of questions in there, Andrew. Let me try yeah, to unpack sorry. a couple of them. You know, the, the the immigration court system obviously is overburdened and and needs to expand to handle all of these claims. But they are adding, they are training and adding judges faster than ever. They are spending more than ever on this system. It's it's just can't grow fast enough, and it's not so simple to you know say well, we need five thousand more immigration judges. Where do you get them? Right. Right. You know, it's not some, you know, immigration judges are, are, you know, have years of training and and it's you can't just materialize them out of out of thin air. So that on the one hand, you know, fixing the asylum system, I think, is something that is widely accepted in both parties as an urgent priority. But as you know, we are farther and farther away from some kind of immigration deal. Right. Every time. This comes up every every time there's an election. There's some little glimmer of, of hope. There's some some you know new bill, new bite. You know some of the, the the more moderate senators and lawmakers come up with something, and it's it's just none of it goes anywhere. So it's almost as if in the two parties, in the Republican Party, any laxity towards immigration is amnesty. But on the other side, any from the increasingly from the Democrats, any attempt to restrict immigration is is being a Nazi, and and so between those two positions, you have two sort of wholly sacred positions, which of course in any compromise they're both going to have to compromise to some extent, but can't because it has become so viscerally and emotionally important to both factions that their core sacred beliefs are not molested in any way. And ironically, I think Trump made this worse because he has pushed the Democrats into a position which they, which is considerably further to the left than where Barack Obama was when he was in office. Can you? How does Biden's immigration policy compare or contrast with with Obama's? Well, I mean, we have to we have to look back at at you know where were we coming out of the Trump administration, right? Immigration was one of the most you know intensely emotional issues. It was, you know, more politicized than ever. It was the basis for Trumpism. And the wall itself was the symbol of, of, of Trump, his, his persona, right? And so at that point, the, the pressure on this new administration, on the Biden administration to repudiate all of that was immense. And so even though you had somewhat moderate figures around Biden who had experience at DHS, who had experience managing the border. Because again, this is about managing a really dysfunctional problem and system, an intractable problem in many ways. But you had people who at least understood that you have to, you really have to find the right balance between enforcement and compassion in order to operate the border in a reasonable way that doesn't completely, you know, deplete your resources and your personnel and, you know, and doesn't produce constant chaos. There were those voices within the Biden administration, but I think they really lost out in that in, in those initial months when the decision was made to, for what, you know, whatever, for whatever political reason, that, that, that so many of what, what policies that Trump had put into place were just unacceptable and had to go immediately. And the signal that that sent was, was pretty unmistakable. And so what we're seeing now, what we're still in now, is the Biden administration in, in trying to adapt and recover from from those initial few months when they really lost control of, of the situation. And so we're now we're at a place where the Biden administration is 
kind of working around the edges, trying to to do to to introduce more enforcement, trying to you know at, at times cracking down on on certain national populations or groups when when their numbers you know grow so great or you know reach new records, and and so you have a lot of advocates who are angry at the Biden administration who said they're no different from the Trump administration, but we really still are at a place where, as I said, most of the people who are trying to come in are entering and and likely being released. And there still is the clearly a perception because we have near record numbers of people being taken into custody every month. There's still this perception that this is a good time to attempt to come in. And what we also see is that people are coming and they are getting jobs, right? I mean, it's a tight labor market, right? It's now. a tight labor market. And all of the people that you see, at, at, you know, near, pretty much all of the people that you see at the border who have made this investment, who have made this decision, and in some cases risking their lives to come here, they almost certainly have a job here waiting for them. And so our system really accepts this. It has acquiesced to this, to this, this process, and it's, it's, it's really not, not good. But it, but it happens completely dysfunctionally and irrationally. What, what's the, the nature and the, the, the origins of most of the nationals coming into the United States illegally now? It used to be overwhelmingly Mexican, but now it is diversified, as it were, not for no DEI officials come in and make sure that it's racially balanced. But it's definitely coming from a much wider range of countries than, than we've seen in the past. Is that That's true, right? We've never seen anything like this, Andrew. I mean, people are coming from virtually every, every country in the world, and they are coming from certain countries at record levels we've never seen before. And yes, there's been a tremendous shift. I mean, from, from it being, you know, mostly almost overwhelmingly Mexican adults, you know, in the, in the 90s and early 2000s to, to this huge wave of Central American migration in the teens and, and even during, you know, the, the Trump administration when we saw record numbers of Central Americans arriving as part of family groups. Well, now we are in a whole new era in which, for example, Cuban, Nicaraguan, and Venezuelan migrants make up an even greater share than you know than anything else than anyone else crossing the border. Than Mexicans, even Mexicans are are the single largest okay. group, but combined, those those three I groups see. are much larger. I see. And then you know we're seeing Colombians arriving in record numbers, Ecuadorans arriving in record numbers, migrants from Africa, from Russia, Georgia, Iran, India. I mean, I was in Yuma last year at one of these spots where. There's a gap in the in the border wall, and people are are crossing every night in the middle of the night. And these huge groups of hundreds of people, many with children, they're arriving from all over the world. And there were groups of men from India, who were who were you know wearing, they were dressed up in these you know heavy coats, thinking that it was that it was that they were going to be cold, and and you know it was like 95 degrees in the middle of you know of the summer night. And, you know, you just never saw things like this before along the border. Did you talk to any of those people? Yeah, I mean, they were were all like, you know, lining up. And really, you see some of these places have become almost like international arrivals halls, like at Dulles, you know, where where people, they're arriving from all over the world. It's almost like their flight has just come in. You know, you you see this line of, you know, 200 people along the, the edge of the border wall. And the border patrol agents, you know, are, are processing them. They're they're scanning. They're using this cell phone app to scan their passports, and that that information immediately populates into the CBP system, so that they they have them in their in their system already. And then they take them, and and then in a, in a matter of you know hours or days, they're they're released into the country with some kind of court date. So it's just a, it's just a remarkable you know migration, and the fact that they're doing very well once they get here means that they're telling their friends back home instantly. Look, 
I'm doing great. And of course, during the Trump administration, the Democrats moved so far into opposition that they essentially were sending signals. I remember watching the first primary debates in the Democratic campaign last time around, in which they were almost vying with each other to make it easier to enter the country. They were make it not a criminal offense to op- across the border, et cetera, et cetera. And Biden is just at this point a kind of victim of that, but he's unable to really take a strong position on it. He's, he's not, has he even given a speech about immigration? Does he, does he, it, we hear rumors that he's privately very frustrated and mad about this. But what is he mad at exactly? What is he, wh- why is he angry and who does he blame for this? Well, I, you know, I, as you pointed out, you know, enforcement policies and immigration enforcement at the general in general remains very much stigmatized within policy circles that are influential on this issue. Even though I mean, polls indicate that that many Americans would obviously like a more moderate position on enforcement, and they would they don't want to see things to be chaotic. That said, you don't see the president himself saying very much, you know, when the vice president went to Guatemala early on and, and said, do not come, you know, she was widely, widely mocked. Well, again, partly because she did it so badly. I mean, I, I mean, you saw that speech. I, I watched it too. And it, it, there's just something about it that, that, that seemed pro forma. It didn't seem exactly don't come or we're going to get you. It was more in sorrow rather than anger. We're sorry we can't let you in right now. But that's about it, right? That's the only real public high-level statement on the, the question that we've had. I don't think there's a lot of to be gained for, for a Democratic figure, particularly you know in the White House, to be seen as too pro-enforcement, right? I mean, the best case scenario is that the border is quiet and people aren't talking about it and you're not you know, getting beat up on this issue. So I think that's a that's a big reason why we don't hear much more. You know, you you do. I mean, if you if you watch the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, I mean, he he will he he says pro enforcement statements all the time. That you know, the border authorities from CBP are are trying to to carry that messaging that the that the border isn't open, that people are going to be returned. But again, I think that that's not what you know migrants are are. That's not who they're listening to. And every time they say that, they lose credibility, it seems to me. And, and they, so you build up this frustration among people, especially on the right now, that are just simply furious that the administration seems utterly indifferent to what is happening. How, how bad is Mayorkas? Everyone says he's t- terrible. I have no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I assume it's an, without Congress actually providing direction and actual settling of these issues, very hard for him, I imagine. But has he been worse than expected? He's in a very difficult spot. I mean, there is a you know huge amount of pressure from the advocacy community. There was initially to to roll back all of those policies. I don't think that he is you know ideologically you know wedded to to you know something like an you know more of an open borders policy. He wanted to restore. He said you know order at the at have an, an orderly policy that w- that balanced you know compassion with a reasonable degree of enforcement. And and he's been struggling to achieve that. And he's become as a result you know obviously a target for Republican lawmakers who wanna wanna blame if someone. And I think. You know, one of the things he does is he absorbs he absorbs some of those blows on behalf of the president and the White right. House, right? He's there he's there to deflect that anger, to absorb it. He can he can take it. Yeah. He goes up on the hill and they just they rip go, him to shreds. They rip him to shreds, but he he parries with them and you know, he's 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 still there. And and so being the homeland security secretary for a Democrat and you know, in, in on this issue in this particular time is not an easy job. When 
they look forward, and Mallorca's looks forward, let's say, I assume they look forward, and they, they look at the broader trends, like the next 20, 30 years, say. What do they see? I, what I see is this, increasing dysfunction, at least it seems pre, a pretty endemic dysfunction in many Central American, Latin American countries, which is going to continue to invite people to, to, to come here to get out of straightened economic political circumstances. You also have climate change, which is clearly going to create havoc in countries which do not have the resources to adjust or be resilient or, or, or particularly vulnerable. It seems to me that just logically speaking, and this goes not just for the United States, but for all of the, the, the Western democracies, the pressure, the, the upward pressure, as it were, from south to north is going to – it's hard to see it subsiding. It, it, in fact, it's impossible not to see it growing quite – dramatically over the next two or three decades. Yeah, and I think there are, I mean, there are a number of factors that contribute to it. Social media is a big one. The world is more connected mm. than ever. People are connected to mm. their friends and family in the United States and back home. Mm. And, and when, they, when they know that there is a job available for them or that there is a way for them to, to make that journey safely and to, to, to reunite as a family, for example, what we're seeing is, you know, large communities, families, entire towns tr transferring to the United States, coming to the United States and, and, and resettling in the United States. This is an old process, right? I mean, this is how immigration to the United States has, has always worked in some ways. Only it's happening now through this incredible labyrinth of, you know, restrictions and loopholes and all of the things that are product of the broken system. But it's the you know, you might call it the social imaginary, the, the, the sense of possibility of people has been sort of sparked by social media, by the ubiquity of your ability to communicate with, to be, be with people in other countries, sometimes becoming friends with people in other countries and cultures and places that you would never otherwise have been involved in. That will always pique curiosity, increase the desire to travel, but also at some deeper level as certain sort of self-realization in the West becomes more popular and you see TikTok and you see social media creating these stars from nowhere and you see regular human beings elsewhere in the world who don't have those resources but want to be part of it. You want to be part of it. Absolutely want to be part of it. Why wouldn't they be part of it? I mean, human beings too. But what happens then is you get, in other words, you, you, you lose some of the traditional ways in which people stayed put, in which they, their world, the entire universe was contained within a particularly cultural geographic zone in which they never really thought about going anywhere else. Most people don't, right? Most people don't think about immigrating or emigrating countries. But, but social media and the internet will inevitably make you think, oh, that would be kind of cool. And why can't I? Well, I think we want, as a society, a certain number of those people to come here and be part of this yeah. and contribute to, to this. You're aware of the, of the demographic challenges that we face as a society with a population that's there's, there's aging, with, with smaller family size. We need workers. There are jobs for them here. For our economy to grow, our country has to continue growing in population you know, as well as economically. And so there, those are the bigger forces that are, that are pulling people here, the pull factor, so to speak. But then you know, all of those people who are, who are seeing these images, who see their friends and relatives come here successfully, who are in touch with them, they want to be a part of this and the, the barriers to making that journey and to making that journey in an illegal way and in a regular way are lower right now. Yeah. And that means, of course, that the society itself 
because of its declining, aging, declining, quote-unquote, white population and the extraordinary racial diversity of the incoming immigrants is going to change quite dramatically. And there is inevitably a cultural reaction to that and resistance to that, especially at the, the speed and pace at which this is happening. Let's put this in some sort of big historical perspective because I, I try and make this point to my readers. And I, you have to fight your way through a chorus of you're a hypocrite, you're an immigrant, you don't want other immigrants, you're a Nazi, you're a white supremacist, all the stuff that you, you just like, no, 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 no. I, I'm really not those things. I just want a system that, that works. Where was I going with that? I have a question for you, Andrew. Yeah, okay. Because I'm curious in your political observations. I think a lot of us were expecting this issue to hurt the Democrats and the, the White House a lot more. What, do you do you think that I mean and and the the race I was watching in particular was was Mark Kelly's Senate race in Arizona yes. was critical right, so he beats Blake Masters even though Blake Masters you know ran on the border issue Kerry Lake also loses I mean this wasn't the winning issue in in Arizona that I think the Republicans were were counting on but no I, except Kelly went out of his way to bash Biden and. Mallorca on the on the border, right? He he he. Maybe he, not to bash them, but certainly to to to, to create distance a himself to distance from. Himself. Correct. So I mean, he made a big song and dance over that. He knew he had to neutralize that issue to him, but he did. And this is this is the other thing. Those of us who have been arguing and worrying that this big demographic cultural change is going to provoke a reaction that is going to be too much for this country to handle. It could be dangerous. It could be racist. It could be all sorts of things. We want to avoid that. So let's kind of try and get this to slow down. That, in fact, hasn't been borne out electorally. Like the Democrats, if, if, if people were voting on immigration in the midterms, the Democrats would have been wiped out, but they weren't at all. And you also look at the poll, and I, the polling on immigration is so confusing in many ways because the question asked makes a huge difference, right? But in general, Americans are ambivalent, don't they? They're, they're, they're relatively, they, they want America to be full of immigrants, but they don't want it to be full of immigrants. <laughs> they, they, they want it every which way, as they do on most things, of course. But, but then we see something like the Trump election. We see the radicalization of the Republican Party. We see things like Brexit. We see, we see most spasms of populist revolt against mass migration. So which is it? Should we just forget this? Or does it take a brilliant politician or a demagogue to really use it like Johnson, like Boris or Trump, who are able to like touch that nerve and get somehow the, the political consensus around it? You know, I don't know. I, I, don't co- I don't cover politics, but I do sense that people just want order, right? They don't like the images of chaos at the border. I think the White House knows that. The Democrats know that. They just can't seem to find their way back to that place while still avoiding the wrath of their activist base. Right. right. I think. I think you want to. I think you want to tighten the asylum to make it mean what it means. It should mean. And then come up with an actual legislative compromise that allows for a certain number of people to come in with certain skills in certain ways and get it done. Legally, and, and, and this, you know, when people, people say, what's the cost of polarization? This seems to me the, one of the most important costs. The two parties are so emotionally and viscerally polarized, they can't compromise on something as bipartisan as our border, our national border. In other words, we are so divided, we, we cannot actually even make a decision any which way on this. Yeah, I mean, this is really the most dysfunctional issue I can think of 
that produces so many pernicious outcomes, including, you know, record numbers of people dying in the desert, drowning in the Rio Grande, drowning at sea, children dying, you know, any number of horrific outcomes that, that and, and yet this, this is, I, I almost stopped thinking about this in terms of it being a dysfunctional system and to, to, and to starting to think about it. It's just this is the system that we have and that we're going to have for the foreseeable future because we are further than ever from some kind of some kind of political compromise on this issue. That's, you know, sitting here and, and watching this year after year and seeing these problems continue to grow worse. And yet, the, you know, the system kind of works in its own way. It works in its own complete dysfunctional way. It, it brings people in who can be easily exploited. It, it satisfies big business in some ways and Correct. big agribusiness. It satisfies the democratic left. Correct. But it violates an orderly, sane immigration process that, you know, people like people, and this is the other thing, that, that the many legal immigrants, even though it took us however difficult it was to get here, uh, makes us look like patsies. It makes, makes us <laughs> look as if, why are we bothering? I mean, well, and, and well, that's a terrible... Well, this is, this, is a, this is an important cost that I, I'd like to point out because you mentioned you, you know, you'd like to see asylum process occur outside the United States. That's, that's actually not asylum. That is a refugee process, right, right? Right, And here we are now into the, what, the third year where the refugee admissions to the United States are at near record lows, right? Right. The Biden administration is barely admitting anyone as refugees. Right. And refugees are people who clearly are fleeing some kind of persecution, who, are, who go through an official process. They're vetted. They're screened. They, they arrive here with legal status. And the path for them to become fully integrated citizens is much clearer and is established. And yet the dysfunctional illegal system takes up so much of the oxygen and so much of the bandwidth of the federal government that, that we've basically allowed the refugee system to die. So the people who really desperately need to get here for what we would normally call asylum reasons, but who are fleeing terror or tyranny or other forms, can't get in. And yet we are kind of broadly using the asylum for all sorts of other people with far less desperate plight to get in regardless. Well, some of the people who are arriving and seeking asylum are truly fleeing persecution. Right. But our ability to, to weed them out, to find them in this process is also diminished by the sheer volume of people who are coming who really aren't persecution victims, who are economic migrants, who are, who are taking advantage of, of this system for purely rational reasons because they have an opportunity to, to come to the United States to transform their lives and the lives of their families and because they, they have a reasonable expectation that they can do it successfully. What's happening to the border towns down there? You've been down there like El Paso or other places where the, the influx is, is, is very heavy. We know, we know that there's been a lot of resistance locally. We've seen some really wild swings to Republicans in Texas, right? I mean, or New, like or New York, right? I mean, look what happened with Mayor Adams Well, Mayor Adams, like this week, just was, like right? we get, you know, or when they show up at the White House, the, 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 the Vice President's house, obviously these stunts are awful. I find them disgusting in many ways, just horrible. On the other hand, you can see the point they're trying to make, which is you don't see this, nor you don't see the buses pull up into, into the Port Authority. You don't see people just trying to find a way in the world. Now, I guess this has always been the American story, but it's, it's, it's it, at least with Ellis Island, there was a process. Right? Well, take El Paso, you, which you yeah. mentioned, who, you know, Representative Veronica Escobar, the Democratic congresswoman yeah. from there, likes to say is the new Ellis Island. And in a lot of ways, she's right. You know, the border towns like El Paso are actually pretty stoic about this and they know what they're doing. And almost all of the big ones have large NGO groups 
who work as unofficial partners of the government to make this system work by taking in migrants once they're released from CBP custody and helping them reach their destinations in the United States. And so these these NGOs and this system is actually employing, you know, dozens if not hundreds of people. They they're they're in many cases associated with, you know, faith communities, but they are minimizing the worst impacts of this dysfunction and are and are doing what, you know, the government is not capable of really doing on its own or what US taxpayers wouldn't want to pay for. But they they make the system work on this side and 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 really prevent some of the more negative impacts. However, you do get moments like we just had in El Paso last month in which the the, the sheer volume of people coming overwhelms that system as well and you get you get people, including children, sometimes in some cases, sleeping on, on the streets because there's simply nowhere for them to stay. There's no more capacity for them. They're coming in numbers so great that, that there aren't beds. And, uh, and those are the, the truly shameful moments for this whole process. There is, you know, there is a humanitarian case for making the system rational and orderly, that the victims, the humanitarian victims of this, children, women, all sorts of people who are otherwise are really partly a function of the the incompetence and the overwhelming nature of the of the influx compared with the stability of the system. But things are even worse because alongside the people coming into the country, we have something else coming into the country from Mexico now, almost overwhelmingly, by a variety of means, but mainly just through the regular means, we have fentanyl, which is now being made in Mexico and brought into the United States. You and your colleagues at the Washington Post have done really remarkable work this last year on the influx of fentanyl into the United States. And it's it's really extraordinary, the impact it's having. I think, what is it, 100,000 deaths? I think, well, let me get the numbers right. You have the right. How many died last year of drug overdoses in America? Roughly 100,000? So more than 107,000 people in 2021 died from drug overdoses, two-thirds of those were fentanyl. And that's those are both records. Two-thirds fentanyl. Yeah. The reason for this, of course, is that fentanyl is, first, there are two things about it. One is its intense concentration. In other words, that, that, that tiny amounts of it are extraordinarily potent in terms of relieving pain, which is why it's been a lifesaver for countless people in very serious medical operations as a, a real anesthetic that, genu- that genuinely has saved many lives by, at the same time, it's the sort of purification of opium, if you want to take it back to its sort of original source, and has left the actual poppy behind entirely. And critically now, can just be ma- you can set up your own lab with the right ingredients, you can make it in large quantities, and it can be transported because it's so minuscule in ways that are far easier than previous attempts to bring drugs across the border. It's not like a big bunch of weed. It's a tiny little sachet of, of, of white powder. Were you shocked or surprised by your, the reporting on this? I was repeatedly shocked and surprised. I mean, I'll just give you a couple of mind-blowing facts. Please. So... Fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin. 
And it is so concentrated that the entire supply for the U.S. market of fentanyl, pure fentanyl, would fit in the back of two commercial trucks, two commercial pickup trucks. A, 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 a user who is using fentanyl every day for a year, their entire supply would fit inside a sugar packet. It's that small. So there's never been anything that represents such a challenge for U.S. law enforcement, particularly at the border, in terms of interdiction. And really one of the scariest parts of this, of this, you know, of this whole crisis that, you know, that we learned about, one of the things that surprised us, is that when you think about you know, it's the cartels are sending it in the form of fake oxycodone pills. So those they're called blues, those blue pills. They're flooding the country with those things by the millions. Those thing, those pills only contain about 2.2 milligrams of pure fentanyl. So very small amount. And then they're also sending powder at a concentration of about six to 8% fentanyl. The rest is just filler. So, and they are dosing on the Mexico side of the border. They are not trying to kill their consumers in the United States. They're actually dialing back the dosage or at least trying to find the right balance between the potency that the marketplace in the United States wants and something too strong that would, it would kill too many users. But as one of, the, one of the top experts we spoke to, this guy, Bryce Pardo, who, who was the lead author on a congressional report about the problem, he pointed out that this means that the cartels have a lot of a lot of wiggle room. Essentially, they are sending ninety percent filler across the border, and if and if we started to interdict more, well, maybe they could just dial up the potency and make the adjustment on this side. Right, but that's interesting. So, the my wonky idea that somehow this is so tiny you can easily ship it across is actually they need to make it more volume in order to send it in more easily. They need to put it into pills or add filler in other kinds of pills to get across. Is that, is that, is that, that that's what you're saying? The pill is basically a, is a dosage unit of, of fentanyl for the, for the marketplace. I see. And that is the, the most common dosage unit at this point. It's, it's, it's the, called a blue, and it's stamped with an M and a 30. The M is for Malincrot. That was one of the big pharmaceutical opioid makers that that you know inundated the country with with ch- cheap pills in the first stage of the opioid crisis in the early 2000s but so all what the cartels are making are these fake M30 pills that are meant to look like oxycodone pills but everybody at this point knows that they are fentanyl pills they're sending those blue pills and then they're sending fentanyl in powder form which the more habituated users seek out because they can adjust the dosage themselves and they can mix it with meth and other drugs <laughs> that is interesting. I so so essentially at this point it's it's blue pills flooding the market that have fentanyl in them and and they're they're tailored so that they're not going to one will not kill you but how accurate is the dosing? I mean that that's the question. How 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 precise can you be when you're dealing with such tiny proportions of a pill. Well, another really surprising thing about reporting this whole series is the degree to which the cartels have transformed into these kind of dark pharmaceutical companies with an ability to to, to dial that dosage fairly accurately and fairly consistently in mm. their shipments. But what's happened is that that blue M30 pill, that fake oxycodone pill that, that is sold so wildly on the street and so cheaply that, that pill has gone up in potency from about 1.3 milligrams of fentanyl to more than 2.2 milligrams of fentanyl. Now, 2 milligrams of fentanyl is considered a lethal dose. 
So what's happening is that the nation's opioid tolerance is going up. The market itself wants more potent pills as the basic dosage unit. But that has made that basic dosage unit lethal to somebody with no opioid tolerance. So if you've never taken fentanyl before, or you didn't mean to take fentanyl, and you take that 2.2 milligram dosage, that's a, you have a, a 6 in 10 chance, according to the DEA, of dying. That's, that's incredibly scary. <laughs> that is, that is ex- 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 extremely concerning. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's overwhelming. I mean, but what w- that is one of the things that is that is that is driving overdose deaths to to these records. But here's what's interesting: the presumably the cartels are their main customer base are current users, <coughs> so they are they're modulating the intensity to get the current users whose 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 tolerance. tolerance has gone up. Right. But and and so they don't want to kill them, but they have presumably less concern about killing a random person who takes one pill or other. That unless they they're potential customers that they're they're killing off accidentally. The product is basically made for that habituated opioid oh, addict see. who represents by far the biggest share of the market. But the collateral damage of that. Mm. Are the, are the teenagers and other young people who are dying from, from fentanyl because they didn't know they were taking fentanyl or because it was mixed into what they thought was cocaine or they thought they were buying a Xanax you know, f- a pill and they had no idea that it was fake or that, or, or that it had fentanyl in it. And that's, that's what's driving these horrible tragedies that, that you know, many listeners are familiar with at this point of, of you know, even young teenagers found dead in their beds by their parents. Because they, they took something and they didn't know it had fentanyl in it. That's a smaller subset of the market. That isn't really the target of the market. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, interview the heads of the, of the cartels to, 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 find, to find this out. But, but most of, you know, according to, to the DEA and to authorities here, you know, most of the time that fentanyl is mixed into something else, that mixing is occurring on this side of the border. When dealers here are putting fentanyl, because it's so potent and so cheap, into other drugs in order to increase the the potency and and to you know beat out their competitors in this marketplace and to get new users hooked and the users want higher and higher highs they 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 this is not a stable situation especially with opioids or opium related you you keep wanting you to go more. higher and you, you need more and so this is this is this is an obviously extraordinary market for these cartels. Tell me, these cartels are are basically multinational pharmaceutical companies at this point. Where are they in Mexico? How do we not? Is it possible for us to, or for the Mexicans to shut this down? Because we were told for a long time, and Trump was big on this, of course. China, 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 and. There was a period, right, when China was the main source for a lot of fentanyl coming into the United States. Correct. But the cartels, seeing this supply chain problem, decided they would, because it's all artificial, can set up their own labs in Mexico and get them across the border very easily. So why isn't the Mexican government more active in stopping this? Well, that is a uh, that is a big question, Andrew. But I mean, yes, you, you're right. There was this, this transition occurred around 2017 
when the cartels began bringing precursor chemicals, they're called precursor chemicals, but it's basically the raw ingredients to make fentanyl, bringing it, it to, to, to Mexico, and they started to manufacture both fentanyl and, and, and meth, you know, really on an industrial scale. Most of it is based in northern Mexico. The two biggest players are the Sinaloa cartel, Sinaloa being you know, formerly run by El Chapo Guzman, the, the, the drug boss, and is now, you know, a big part of that cartel is operated by his sons. And then their competitor is the Jalisco cartel, essentially based in the state of Jalisco. The DEA says that these two these two groups are, are international, you know, evil corporations at this point, and that they're targeting them all over the world, and they are expanding all over the world. But, you know, as far as the Mexican government goes, one of the reasons that this has been so challenging for the United States is that we came out of a period in, in 2018 after which the United States and Mexico were really close partners in trying to take on the cartels militarily. You know, this was the era of the of the, the Mexican military working with the DEA and the CIA and, and you know, U.S. agencies to, to track and, and locate drug bosses in order to take them out and to try to break up their cartels. There were a lot of costs associated with this for Mexican society and the Mexican government and violence and homicides, you know, soared through this, through that, through that fight. And when the, the current president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, was running for office, he really promised to change that and, and argued that the drug war was, fa- was failing, that Mexico was carrying too much of the costs. And he promised to completely, you know, reassess that relationship. And so when he takes office in late 2018, you know, U.S.-Mexico cooperation really falls apart right at the moment that fentanyl is taking off. Mm. And the cartels have ruthlessly exploited that opportunity to expand and grow and and crank this stuff out on a scale that no one's ever seen before. And all of this happens right before the United States goes into the pandemic and enters this incredibly dark and depressing time in which overdose deaths skyrocket. That's another extraordinary piece of timing that 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 we have a essentially broken border we have a whole new mechanism for production and distribution of a very dangerous drug and you have an event in the united states that is tipping and everywhere in the world that tips average lives that have some balance if they're slightly vulnerable can be tipped into depression or into drug use into suicide or or, or fentanyl, and we've seen, and alcohol for that matter, and weed. We see a lot of a lot of narcotics in the system, and inevitably during periods like that, they're going to go up. Yeah, um, let, let me give you another stat. Since 2019, the number of fatal overdoses in the country has increased 94 percent, and so now since 2019, since just 2019, and really that's the pandemic. So overdoses basically doubled during the pandemic, fatal overdoses, and and. Fatal overdoses from fentanyl now kill more Americans than car accidents, gun violence, or suicides. Wow. It is the leading cause of death for Americans ages 18 to 49. It's killing young people. Fentanyl is the leading cause of death for P- Americans aged 18 to 49. Right. That's, it's an incredible statistic. When you think of the amount of effort and time we spend debating, say, gun violence— which is important to discuss. I'm not saying it isn't. But we seem just to, we just don't seem to be able to understand this as the crisis that it seems to me that it is. And I mean, that's what really motivated our, our reporting and drove our, our series is yeah. just seeing, seeing this incredible wave of death and suffering 
that people weren't really talking about. I mean, I think people know that fentanyl is bad. They know that it's out there. They know that it's killing a lot of people. But I don't think, you know, during the pandemic, people realized how much worse this problem had gotten. And they wouldn't know it by by watching, you know, the, the White House and, and the president. And, he no, and, the pan, and the pandemic, of course, then created a new class of, of people addicted to this. And it's a, it's a win-win situation for the cartels. They keep building the, the, the toleration. They keep building the market. And that's, you know, that's one place where, you know, another thing that I've, that I've picked up from this is that obviously this is a demand-driven problem, right? And this is what, you know, Mexican authorities will push back and say, well, the demand is in the United States. And if Americans didn't buy fentanyl, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't have these cartels. And I hear that from U.S. law enforcement, too. But but there's another thing happening here, which is that supply can create its own demand, right? If you flood the marketplace with something that is really cheap, then more people will start using it and more people will get addicted to it. And probably the craziest thing that we learned, for me at least, in the course of reporting this, is just how cheap these drugs are on the streets now. So a, a, a blue fentanyl pill, those are retailing on the streets for like $4, so, you know, whereas so you can be dead for ten bucks, <laughs> you can you can buy something that will kill you or produce this intense high for less than the price of like a hamburger, and and when you go around and you know anybody who has been to downtown San Diego, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Baltimore, you see so many people living on the street in the grips of addiction. That is what's driving this this massive supply, and you and I don't know you know. There are, certainly there is an argument for, for decriminalization, and that's a debate that we should have. But I just don't see how you can, you know, you can legalize something that dangerous and addictive I don't, I, and just I, let the supply go crazy. I am a, a liberalized, liberalizer in most cases of drugs. I think there are a handful like meth and fentanyl that I think are so instantly toxic and dangerous to the human mind, soul, and body that it makes sense to try and interdict them. My worry with fentanyl is that it's kind of, I wrote this, it's kind of the drug's checkmate in the drug war, which is that we can, this can be so cheap, first of all, so anybody can amount, four bucks, anybody. Um, it is so concentrated, it's relatively easy to get across the border. I mean, they're not, and this is, his, his, this is, this is a question we also get into, how on earth would... Let's just say we had a perfect government. How would they be able to stop these pills coming across the border? You know, we have this these general rhetoricians saying, well, we just stop the drugs at the border, we'll put the wall in. But of course, when the drug is so intensely concentrated, when you have this number of people coming back and forth across the border, how on earth do you stop this this wave? Now, they have technology, right? They have technology to try and scan and detect fentanyl in any package or anything coming into the country, although God knows how much comes into the country from the Mexican border. But, and the Biden administration is trying to implement some of that. I'm like, tell, tell, tell us where, where they are on that, because that does seem to be some practical way forward. Yeah, that's a great question. So anybody who's been to an airport recently is familiar with the, the advancements in scanning technology. You know, when you're going through the TSA line and they, they're now putting your bag through something that can basically produce a three-dimensional image of what's in that bag, that technology is available at a much larger scale at the border for vehicles. And again, 
almost all of the fentanyl coming into the country is coming through official ports of entry, through the official border crossings, hidden in passenger vehicles and commercial trucks. Now, the Trump administration spent $11 billion on this border wall. The Trump at the time said that it was going to stop drugs. It's virtually useless for stopping fentanyl because fentanyl is coming right through the front door. But this scanning technology was recognized as a priority during the Trump administration back in 2019. And Congress, as part of the shutdown deal, came to an agreement on a huge new pot of money for these improvements to scanning technology, more than $500 million, to add these systems to the ports of entry and to vastly increase the percentage of commercial trucks and passenger vehicles that are inspected. Only about 6% of commercial trucks and 1% of passenger vehicles are being inspected. And that's why the cartels are sending it in these vehicles and don't need to send it through the border and don't need to have migrants carrying it. They can just flood, flood it through the front door. Anyway, they, this scanning technology was identified as this priority in 2019. And, and it was not, it's only in the last year that we've begun to really start to put these systems in. They, they underestimated the amount of money that they would need for the associated civil works projects to reroute the passenger entry lanes to let this technology work. And the whole effort is basically five years behind. So during that, that time that we've, we've, you know, we lost this opportunity to increase the percentage of vehicles that we scan, the amount of fentanyl and, and meth coming in has just exploded. And that's not to say that this scanning technology is going to be a panacea. They will find other ways to try to get it in with drug tunnels, with, with drones. I mean, who knows? But, you know, as with any problem like this, you, you know, you have to be able to, to do kind of an all, take an all of the above approach and, and reducing that supply and maybe driving up that price is, is an important step. How does it work? They, 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 you, you look at the, you see a, like, like you look at the TSA picture. They can show you all the inside of a car so they can see a bag of blue pills stuffed behind the car, behind some piece of the engine or something. I, I, is it blue pills coming across? Is that how they're It's mainly- blue pills and powders, but what they're looking for are not the drugs themselves, but anomalies. They call them anomalies. So they can, they, they have like a, like, let's say you have like a Ford F-150, Right. And what they need is a database of what the scan, the skeleton of a Ford F-150 looks like. And if they, if they have that image in the database and then, the, and then a Ford F-150 with a, you know, with a couple kilos of fentanyl hidden in some fake compartment tries to go through, then that anomaly in the vehicle, in the scan, that shows up. And they can send that vehicle to the secondary inspection process where the officers will strip it down and actually see what that is. Mm. The problem and the challenge for them is that these systems, these scanning systems, produce a huge number of images. And they don't have the software and the artificial intelligence yet that they were, they were supposed to develop, but they don't have it yet that would allow this process to be automated and to, be, to occur fast enough that they don't completely disrupt trade. Because... Again, you know, this is all happening in a context of tens of thousands of vehicles coming across, you know, all of them for, you know, the vast majority for legitimate purposes, right? You can't really affect that too much. So you need, you need systems that will allow you to do this fast, and that, that effort is also too far behind. But as a principle, it could make a difference. I mean, if we're only checking 6% of the, somewhere around that, of the vehicles coming in. What percentage could be achieved with this kind of system? 
They wanted to get up to 75% of commercial vehicles and about 45% of passenger vehicles. And, and Congress has, has, has mandated that DHS and CBP come up with a plan to be able to do 100%, mm. to be able to, to just run almost everything through these scans and, and, you know, and, and process them and adjudicate these images, is what they call it, as quickly as possible. But, you know, but right now, you know, using the systems they have, you know, federal agents at the border told us that they think they're only getting about 5 to 10% of the drugs that are coming in. I mean, they don't, they don't know what they're not getting, but they think they're only getting 5 to 10%. And so... But again, the challenge, as you, as you pointed out earlier, is that two, two trunk loads of this could kill the entire country. I mean, it, it, yeah. it could kill 330 million people. It's, and to some extent, it, there are some people who argue that, in fact, fentanyl should be understood as a poison problem, really, rather than a, a drug problem. And because of this, imagine, imagine like, remember, remember when there was a worry that Tylenol had, I think it was uh, several, a couple of decades ago, had some contaminants in it that could be bad. Well, the country stopped. They took every Tylenol off the shelves. We have a whole bunch of oxycodone fakes out there, which, which will kill you. But of course, we can't call up CVS and say, take them all off the shelves. But that is, that's what we're, we're dealing with, a poison problem as well as a drug problem. Yeah, the country is being poisoned by these drugs. I mean, one of the stories in our series is about these five friends in, in Colorado right. who, God, uh, was who were part, you know, partying one night. Some friends, really in their thirties, many with small children, who who got together and you know made the mistake of of buying some cocaine. They they were they were part. They thought they were partying with cocaine, and there was fentanyl in that cocaine. And of the six people who were at this party, five of them dropped dead almost instantly leaving behind, uh, you know, seven, seven children lost oh. a parent that night. Their families were devastated, but, you know, those people were poisoned. And this is what their, you know, their relatives pointed out. These were people who did not seek out fentanyl, did not think they were using fentanyl, and had no tolerance to fentanyl. And no, their bodies did not have the ability to, you know, to, to, to survive it. And, you know, in taken, taken in those amounts, it shuts down your respiratory system, it can induce cardiac arrest, and it kills basically with the speed of a, of, of a poison like cyanide. And so w- w- even though that the- It the, kills, let's, let's, it kills by relaxing your lungs so much they don't breathe, right? That's basically, yes. that's basically what happens, right. that your body loses the capacity to actually breathe. So you, you, you die of, of suffocation, essentially. Right, right. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it it's blo- a blissful form pl- of suffocation, apparently. Well, well the, thing, the other thing we have to accept, I think, and this is one point I made in the piece I wrote about this, is that denying the intense pleasure of these drugs, which is what's drawing people to them, seems to, to describe them entirely as horrifying. No one would ever touch them, except that they are also giving people a sense of power, happiness, bliss, temporarily. But that is, this is, this is not a new phenomenon in human history. This drug, particularly even though it's now reached this sort of, almost its sort of logical end point of concentration, has always been used by humans. It's very hard for us not to use it in some way or other. Well, look at, I mean, look at Southern California. There are tens of thousands of people living outdoors on the streets of Southern California, close, as close as possible to the source of the cheapest drugs, Tijuana. And for, you know, not very much money, can forget about their suffering and the, and the problems that, in their lives, and they can experience that euphoria 
and 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 live outside and they are trapped in that addiction cycle and for you know when you, when someone like that wants to break that cycle and wants to get out of it it's very important for there to be treatment options but a lot of people are are still like firmly in that in that lifestyle and that and being cycle. kept almost comfortable in it by the authorities are not willing to crack crack down on this and some of them I've seen interviews in which some of them are quite honest about this. It's like, well, yeah, it's great. I get up, I do some drugs, I go back, get fed by some NGO or something, and 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 it's quite a nice way to live, you know. If if you if you don't mean smacked out of your head half the time, but it is those homeless villages, as it were, really are a visual reminder of something that is largely otherwise invisible. In other words, this is a, and this is. When we had the crack epidemic, you know, we had huge amounts of violence. We don't see that with this. So we don't have that kind of terror of the drugs that are associated with it. It's a silent, deadly killer in a way. And it, it doesn't make you revved up. It makes you quieten down. So you'll find, you won't find people dead in, gun shoot, in, a, in gunshot wounds in, in, in a city, but you will find a middle-class teenager never waking up in their own bedroom. And that's that's also... And then families, of course, are... The ability to broadcast that, to accept that. Families, I mean, the sheer toll on families who've lost fellow members in this way and, and covered up or can't quite acknowledge it or are shamed or just completely knocked sideways by the idea that they're teen. Even though the teen might have just been like, oh yeah, let's do an eat. Let's do it. Let's, let's drop some molly this weekend and we'll have a nice party. Something that your average teen is probably going to be doing and dead. It's, it's, uh, is this maybe how the drug war resolves itself? It just, everyone dies? Gosh, I, I mean, it, it does feel like some late stage of narco capitalism right like the like the super drug that comes along that is like the perfect you know cartel product it's horrifying to think that this would that it would end this way nobody that we talked to for this series thought that we were near the bottom or that things were going to turn around anytime soon i think that there is more awareness there is more of a, a robust effort by the federal government by parts of the biden administration to get the message out about fentanyl's lethal risks. Again, it's important, it seems to me, that in some ways, it's not that fentanyl is the seriousness, because if, you, if you're concentrating on fentanyl, which you should do, obviously, but you'll miss the fact that that line of coke might be fentanyl. That, that, is it, is it, that you know, they, these other pills that you think are going to be fine, that Xanax, that benzo you just bought online on the internet, that might have fentanyl in it. In other words... It is not just a danger for those seeking out fentanyl anymore. What, what changes the equation is this is now in a whole bunch of other drugs. It's contaminated the entire recreational drug supply. Yeah. yeah. Which is beginning to make all recreational drugs Russian roulette at this Correct. point. Does that apply to weed, he said plaintively? No. <laughs> I think you're all right, Andrew. <laughs> not that you're buying your weed on the street. <laughs> Get it from the dispensary across the street here. Yes. I, I, but, but nonetheless, I... Part of me worries a little bit, like they're going to lace it with something. There have like, been very few cases of of wanna being laced with fentanyl. I know it was a scare for a while, but to the calm extent, down, everyone. Yeah. You're going to be all right if you smoke your weed, but, but mo most of everything else yeah. is possibly hazardous, not just in a bad way, but in a 
terrifying way. Terrifying way, yes. And and parents, I mean, I hate to be the one saying this, but really, really need to talk to their children about this. If anything, you know, we wanted to convey with this series is that, like, this is an urgent conversation that parents need to have. With their and the kids. conversation, it seems to me, has to be, look, we know you might try some drugs. You know, we're against it. We don't think you should, but this is going to happen. But this is different because this is a poison in the drugs you may be taking. It may not be the drugs you think you're taking. That's in right. other words, we need to have a poison message that That's right. everything is suspect now, that your party drugs, that you, you know, you're, you're going to take on a rave night in the, on the weekend, that, could, that, that little pill of E could have a fatal dose of fentanyl in it. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the 80s with the D.A.R.E. program and the frying pan with the, with the egg, you know, and the government telling you that <laughs> this like is that. your brain on drugs. And we all laughed at that. And, and in the era, you know, as, 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 you know, the push for marijuana legalization grew, you know, the, that kind of messaging seemed ridiculous. Well, now it's really true. You know, the, that, that drug will, will, will kill you. One mistake can kill you because of the lethality of fentanyl. And yet the government, you know, essentially is the little boy who cried wolf too many times. The credibility that it has to carry a message like that has been greatly diminished by those campaigns. And, and this is when that, that messaging is, is more needed than ever. And when the draconian methods of controlling drugs were used against drugs that weren't as dangerous as fentanyl and failed, you now have this lack of credibility in terms of what this drug can do to people's minds. What is the... Because you spent some time in Central America. People are making a lot of money off this, presumably. These cartels are making vast amounts. In Mexico? Yeah. Yes, they're making billions of dollars off this, Andrew. Billions. Yes, this is incredibly lucrative. You know, this is the story of the of the transformation in their business model from plant based substances like marijuana, cocaine, and heroin that required that you know them to control tracts of land and hire farmers, and you know worry about the the weather and the seasons and that type of thing. All of that is gone. You know, they can bring these these cheap chemicals. From Asia, they can produce these illegal drugs, these synthetic drugs, in makeshift laboratories right along the border. And, you know, if they just have a few workers and chemists, they can churn this stuff out really on an industrial scale. And they can, so they can afford to lose a big part of it to seizures or to whatnot. But, it, you know, there's a, there's a reason that Tijuana, Mexico, has the country, the Mexico's highest homicide rate right now. It is the deadliest city in all of Mexico. It is the, the focal point of the And the that's because of, because of cartel wars. That's because of cartel wars. And that's because Tijuana, San Diego, is the most important gateway for, for fentanyl and meth into the United States. It's the primary gateway, second only to Nogales, Arizona, which is also, a, you know, a major cartel. Where, Arizona? Nogales, Arizona, Nogales. Sonora on the Mexican side and Nogales, okay. Arizona. That is the other. There's been a shift over the last year. More fentanyl seizures appear to be happening there. Do you think, because the Biden administration is pretty positive about what they call harm reduction, which is, which is not a brutal attempt to crack down on drug use, but an attempt to deal with people where they are, to wean them off stuff, to get them into housing, to not necess necessitate stopping the drugs entirely in order to get into a program of rehabilitation and treatment. That's, But it does seem to me that when you have a, a drug that can kill you with one pill, that harm reduction, if it means continuing to supply you with stuff that is potentially fatal, is kind of almost contradicting itself. And also, I find fentanyl fascinating because I think it just kind of destroys most of the previous paradigms we've been trying to use in terms of controlling drugs. 
there there are some easy harm reduction tools that the government has and is going to be expanding and there's billions in new money for this kind of stuff and they include like narcan the mm. naloxone is the generic name for the drug but it's an opioid reversal and if it's administered to somebody who's overdosing it's very effective at at saving their life we're now seeing narcan like in in schools everywhere almost like a fire extinguisher like you know break in case of emergency because so many so many teenagers are are overdosing, mm. but but first responders and law enforcement around the country need to be carrying this, and many of them are, and that's an effective way to to save lives. There are some new money for drugs like buprenorphine that help people get off opioids. But again, but what's interesting? Here, these are purely pharmaceutical responses to a pharmaceutical. They're not any social policy change. There are not any psychological change. The other big question is why do Americans want oblivion? You know, why do so many want? this numbing sense of happiness and escape. And that's a much deeper question, that's obviously, deeper about question. where we are as a society. But I, I, I can't help but feel that some of this, at least, is in part due to a kind of general spiritual, what's the word? It's not void. It's just, it, it's just, it's just people, the meaning in people's lives has disappeared to such an extent that pleasure becomes their meaning. And they really think of their lives as essentially means of sustaining pleasure. And this comes along, which is probably the most pleasurable thing humans have ever created for themselves. I mean, I, I don't underestimate opium. It, it is, it, it's lasted thousands of years. It's, it's an incredibly potent drug. It does things to the human psyche that the human psyche at some level wants. Well, I do want to c connect this, though, to a more terrest terrestrial origin Please. of this crisis, which is the ph U.S. pharmaceutical yeah. opioid industry, right? I mean, in the they kind of started it. Yeah, in the nineteen in the nineteen nineties, when the country was being flooded with with oxycontin and other opioids, and 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 doctors were prescribing this stuff like crazy, and people were being told that you know they shouldn't be in any pain. We got a generation of Americans hooked on opioids. And when the government cracked down and those companies really tightened up, there was a big vacuum in the marketplace. And the cartels have filled that. They filled it first with heroin, and they quickly figured out that fentanyl could be made much, much more inexpensively. They, had, that, they had the tar heroin they used to That's right. very easily send across the border. And, and they had this remarkable um, – Sam, Sam Quinones has this in one of his books. Dreamland, yeah. yeah the, just how you just – Make a phone call, meet someone in a parking lot, boom, the easy. Yeah. No risk really to yourself, very suburban, very middle class, very easy to do. But of course, fentanyl is the, is the, is the, the next gauge, the, the, the iPhone 14 or whatever of this particular, of this particular formulation, but, but a much bigger improvement than the iPhone 13 over iPhone 12 to, to, to beat that metaphor to an untimely death. Well, this is all cheerful. Uh, oh, sorry. Nick, no. Happy New Year. It's important. And I wonder why this isn't not better understood as probably one of the most urgent questions. Maybe because it's bound up with the border question also, which becomes very toxic. Yeah. But also the sheer kind of quixotic nature of attempting, even if we had scanning of every car, it doesn't take many cars to get through for there to be a pretty national crisis. I mean, right. they, they're oversupplied right now, right? I mean, there's, right. There's, the stuff is all over the place. And that's one reason it's so cheap. Yeah. Yeah. 
But does the cheapness in any way affect the profits of the cartels? Presumably it must at some level. But, but are the precursors, the actual chemicals they use to make this stuff, expensive? No. And, and even if they can, you know, there's a big effort to try to crack down on the precursors. The Mexican government and, and the U.S. is working with Mexico to try to intercept more of these chemicals as they arrive, mainly from Asia, in Mexican ports. But a lot of these chemicals have dual purposes. You know, they're they're used in common things like mm-hmm. pesticides and soaps and, and, and other, you know, other substances, other everyday, you know, with everyday use. So completely controlling the precursors is, is almost going to be impossible. Nick, it's been fantastic to have you back. Thank um, you, Andrew. However sobering this conversation has been. Sorry, for such a downer. It, well, it's, you know, part of what we do try and do here is... We're trying to figure out what's actually happening, what is reality, and what we need to think about. And this may be a downer, but it's a huge, huge question. Do we have a country with a border? And do we have, do we have the end of the drug war in which the drugs finally win? And in so doing, wipe out large amounts of the population. But that's what we're – I mean, if I were being dramatic about it, that's what I would, I would say. And it seems to me to be the role of government to, to sustain – a viable national border and to prevent poisons from coming in and killing its citizens. And if that isn't what the federal government is for, I don't know what the hell it's doing. So I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to start off the new year with this subject. I was very happy, really fascinating to read. Please look up Nick and his many colleagues, actually, have written a series of pieces on, on the immigration crisis, but specifically it's, it's the fentanyl dynamic of it and the fentanyl crisis gripping the country, it does not seem to be waning. It seems to be have this grip that is terrifying. The stuff I wrote about two or three years ago now has been supplanted. And all the worries about what fentanyl could do are being borne out. I just, I don't know what to do except pray that the people survive and pray that People don't take risks. And I hate to say this. I am not, as you know, a prohibitionist about drugs. I, I, but I do think when you have poison out there, lethal poison that could be in anything you take, be incredibly careful. Do not take anything from sources you don't know, or you could be dead. So, Nick, thank you. I know it's a, <laughs> it's a cold and lonely work, but I'm particularly glad you've done it. And I'm particularly glad to bring it to some wider awareness and audience. So thank you so much for coming in again. And maybe in a couple of years' time, we'll come in and see that we have 200,000 deaths from fentanyl and we're still not getting anywhere. I'm sure it'll all be fixed by then. I just wish that there was even some real political debate about it. This is something the president should be talking about. But they're all, they're all useless. <laughs> well, the, the series is called Cartel Rx. And I thank you so much for giving me You're a welcome. chance to Cartel talk Rx, it's how the... Drug cartels in Mexico have become essentially big pharmaceutical companies pumping what is now poison into the American bloodstream. We will see you next week. We have a really stellar lineup, as I said. Glenn Lowry and Rod Dreher, John Gray, some really amazing people coming on to talk. If you like this and you've enjoyed the Dishcast, we give it away for free. But we'd love you in return to subscribe to the Dish if you would, if you're not subscribing we're thinking of maybe putting a a break on the the podcast so that you could only listen to half of it if you haven't paid up that's that's our tough (laughs) 
not tough-minded. But in general, this is a public service in a way, I guess. But please support it. If you haven't subscribed, please do. We'll keep raising what we think are the important issues, even if they're not exactly the sexiest ones. So, happy 2023. I will see you next week. Lots of love. Bye. <laughs>